1: Welcome back to our podcast and today Elena Martins is with us and she's a commercial um, real estate mortgage broker and welcome.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: So how did you get into this career? What made you decide that this, this is what you want to do and is really, you know, kind of got you, gets you excited every day?
0: Uh, I was fortunate at a very young age uh, during college to get an internship with the city of Montebello. So I'm from Southern California, born and raised. I've lived here my entire life. And the city of Montebello is a small suburb of of Los Angeles, about nine miles east of downtown. And uh, the city was very active in bringing developers with very large projects back in the days of Edwards Theaters and Price Club, and that was an introduction, and I decided right there and then that I would make that my focus uh, and and pursue an undergraduate degree in real estate finance at uh, USC.
1: Okay. So, you know, explain to us a little bit more. I mean, people understand what, um, you know, what what real estate and and, uh, people with, uh, you know, primary residence and things like that, but... Um, when you talk about with the commercial real estate, um, are you talking about that you put together big packages, um, help planning out, or is it people, people coming to you? How, how does it work?
0: Well, commercial real estate, um, there's some basic food groups, retail office, industrial, multifamily, hospitality, um, assisted living, Mm self-storage. And so. You know the, the 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 common denominators that they eventually produce cash flow
1: okay. through a
0: tenant situation, and so in my in my thirty-year career, I just dated myself.
1: <laughs>
0: I've worn I've worn many hats, um, and the hat that I've worn the most is uh, that of a lender. And so my career has always focused on properties that are in transition, and what that essentially means is um, it could be land that's going to be developed into something it could be multifamily uh, retail office industrial or it's an old property that's getting that's producing some cash flow that's not quite at market and it's getting repositioned into something better someone's coming in and saying I can do better and then you know they may be bringing in better tenants etc and so Um, Through that 30 years where I've worked with developers in Las Vegas, for example, there was a time when I was driven out into the middle of the desert and I'm standing next to the developer who says this will be a, you know, thousand unit residential community and I would put together feasibility studies. Um, And so, you know, I'm an analyst through and through. My job hasn't changed. I have this little toolbox of skills and, and depending on where we are in the market, whether we're in a downturn or an upswing. I've always been busy fortunately in this business and so my job has always been to assess how to get the project from where it is today to its final vision and that involves a lot of pieces to a puzzle. Um, it's a it's a big thousand piece puzzle that I put in order and um, Basically, you know, I'm acting as an advisor, looking at deals, vetting them, and then again, in my mind, deciding what the path to execution and success will be. And that does involve a lot of packaging, underwriting, Excel modeling, et cetera.
1: That's interesting because I mean, lots of times people just think, okay, with real estate and stuff, it's just, you know, somebody's looking for office space and you get them office space. But you're doing a lot more than that in the development of stuff so it sounds like a lot of what you're doing is kind of starting from scratch and and Mm -hmm. everybody all the way through the whole the whole process
0: yeah i'm I'm the money finder and so someone comes to me and says you know i've owned this piece of dirt for a long time i've spent the last three or four years entitling it i've spent um a million dollars that's that's the money i have in this piece of dirt And um, I want to build a retail shopping center. I want to build a a community. Mm -hmm. How do I do that? And, and I, you know, I need a loan and and sometimes we call it the capital stack, uh, right? It involves both debt. So you can borrow from a bank or you can borrow from a, a debt fund. And then it also involves equity. And sometimes that's sweat equity by virtue of having owned the asset for quite some time it's appreciated in value and sometimes it's I'm buying it now. You know, you, it's just like home home ownership. You got to put some money down. And in home ownership, we can get away with five, 10%. Um, in commercial real estate, it's typically, you know, 20 to 35%.
1: That's, I mean, that's <laughs> it that definitely sounds like um, you've had quite a career in all the different things that you've been able to see and, and, and do at this point.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a dynamic career. It's always different. Um, I never know what I'm going to be working on. And I could be working on a hotel. I could be working out in Phoenix, uh, which I've got some projects in Phoenix going on right now. I could be working on co-ops in New York. And so that's what makes it so fun and dynamic. It's not a nine to five job where you show up and you do the same thing every day. I, right. I never know. And, and the best, the most satisfying part of it is driving around, you know, L.A., And I look at a building and I'm like, I'm part, you know, I like to think I'm I'm the big reason that building exists. And so that makes it a lot of fun.
1: So tell us about um, a project or a deal or something that you've done. (laughs) I mean, you can just say, hey, you drive through LA. Hey, I'm responsible for that building. What is the the one deal or um, project that you've done that you're most proud of?
0: When I was in my 20s working as a lender, um, it's a California-based lender um, that was owned by a public company, and a developer came to me and said, we have this great idea. There's a pocket of downtown LA that's blighted with old abandoned warehouses, some homeless, and we have an idea to convert Um, a warehouse building into condominium lofts. And the city had just passed an ordinance, it was called the, the Adaptive Reuse Ordinance, that streamlined a developer's ability to do that, to rezone the property from one product type to another. And the first deal I did was called Toy Factory Lofts in the downtown LA Arts District. It was a $20 million loan. I was the first institutional lender to come into an area and, and, and invest on behalf of uh, um, the bank. Uh, $20 million to take this old toy warehouse and convert it to, I can't remember the number. Um, it's about 100 lofts. And so now, you know, envision artists' lofts with high ceilings, very few walls, um, a rooftop Pool deck. It was a very cool project, and because of that, it rolled. And this was in the early 2000s. By the time I exited that particular submarket, I had done probably 250 to 300 million in um, in in projects. And so, when you drive down there today, um, there's about five or six projects that I did with two separate developers. Now you've got the big developers in the market. Um, You've got Warner, you've got Lucky Brand, you've got a lot of big credit names that didn't exist there before. And I'd like to think that I was one of the pioneers and sort of jump-starting investment in that market because the deals that I did worked so well and did did very, very well for both uh, my developers and and obviously my bank.
1: That's pretty cool.
0: Very cool, Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's pretty cool what um what are some of the questions that um when somebody comes to you um saying that they want to kind of get into the commercial real estate side of things what are some of the questions that you wish that they were that they were really asking you that that they're not doing right now
0: um well you said get into um I should probably describe my clients. Most of my clients are middle market entrepreneurs who have some track record. They've they've gotten their feet wet in the industry. They've, some of them have come to me and said, look, I've just been remodeling single family homes. And now I want to build a duplex or a five or a 10 unit apartment community. What I would say is I wish they'd they come to me earlier on in the process, okay. um, because um, it's rare that I get a complete package that's ready to go out to market. Usually, I'm the one vetting the deal and asking some really tough questions. Um, I'm the interrogator, right? And through that interrogation, and I ask the tough questions: What's your track record? And you know, let's keep in mind that we're when we're in a in an improving market everybody's everybody looks great and my job is to think about what happens if the market turns can this individual or group weather that storm and so um, I guess I'm I always wish they would come to me sooner because um, sometimes they're out of time and then I'm the one pressured to go solve these problems in a very short time period so it's not so much the question it's the timing of
1: when they finally show up and find me. Yeah, I, we we find that here also in the fact of people go out, they set up their business, they start uh, doing things and then they come to us because then they're saying, oh, well, I need to now do a tax return when it's like, okay, you really should have come to us ahead of time so we could have helped you get everything set up properly and, and get right. you set up with an you know, attorney to make sure you got the right documents and everything else so we kind of run into the same thing and then we're caught cleaning up the mess and where right. you know, the pressure seems to be on us <clears throat> um you know you talk about um you know maybe the the possibility of a downturn or something like that what do you i mean with us being in, in covid 19 and things being shut down and, and so forth what <clears throat> what is this doing to your industry right now
0: um, well, certainly the, the industry has been affected, primarily retail and hospitality. And so part of, you know, George Smith Partners, we, not just, we don't just raise capital. We, all, we act as an advisor, and sometimes we end up acting as sort of a CFO. And so um, a lot of the projects that I was working on pre-COVID were put on hold, and we all had to pivot And our clients started coming to us and saying, hey, you know, how do I work through my existing situation with my current lender? Um, And so, you know, I've I've had to play that role in really maybe working through loan modifications or help, you know, the deals get put on hold, they will resume and really managing those expectations. And, you know, because of my 30 years having been a lender, establishing relationships with Capital sources that include banks and debt funds and institutional equity investors. It's it's really uh, they want to know. They want to know what's going on. And the, the worst thing you could do. And and you know, I was during the last big downturn. I worked for a U.S. bank and I managed a three hundred million dollar portfolio of non performing loans. I, you know, I I had I had to stop being a lender, which I absolutely loved. I had to put on a different hat. And the best thing that that you can do as as a a real estate investor is is be transparent about what's going on. Lenders appreciate that, and you'd be amazed. The documents are set up very black and white. It's a very black and white world from a legal standpoint. But that doesn't mean that you can't call up your lender and say, look, something's happening that is not of my creation. I'm a victim of a a macroeconomic environment. And so now I have cost overruns. Now my project is delayed. And you know, while they're not a partner, their job is to um, ensure a successful loan. And my job oftentimes is to come in and re-underwrite and give a realistic expectation of what we can now expect. And more often than not, actually you know, 99% of the time the lender will say, we understand, we will forbear, we will not exercise our remedies, we will work with you, and then you have a successful outcome. And so, you know, I, I find that the lender hat is the hat that I, I always put on, you know, sometimes on a daily basis, because I understand where the pressure points are from, from both the lender's perspective and the equity investor perspective to help get that business plan done. <clears throat> you know, I just closed a, um, a co-living project in San Francisco last week that you know, we went under application in March and construction shut down. <clears throat> um, the existing lender had filed bankruptcy the summer of 2017 or 2018. There weren't enough proceeds in the existing loan to help complete this new business plan. The budget had almost doubled, but so had the pro forma because they decided, hey, now we're going to pursue a co-living. And so developers pivot all the time they're reacting to the market and our job is to help organize that event and put them in a loan that's going to help them you know get through to the finish line and and one of the things that i did um you know was i got the existing lender to waive a fifty thousand dollar exit fee all because i just asked right and 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 we happen to have a great relationship with the bank that that or the group it's a debt fund that bought the assets of that failed bank. And I called one of the head guys and I said, Hey, I'm working on this little loan. Boy, it's been beat up through the last six months. We've been waiting and they had to you know, get shut down. Any chance you would consider waiving the $50,000 exit fee? And they came back and said, yeah, if you can get it closed by next Friday, not only that, we'll waive the extension fees. We'll wait. So oh, wow. it was probably worth, you know, $80,000, $90,000. And uh, the, that's what happened. So I'm always looking
1: for an angle to help my client. Right, right. no, it, it, it sounds like uh, you you uh, definitely earned your money there. So, I mean, that's a great example of why somebody that uh, is in or getting into commercial real estate should use a professional like you. What are some other uh, examples of why somebody should use a professional like you um, when they decide to get into to the commercial okay. real estate side?
0: So remember that I was a lender for Mm -hmm. 15 years and I worked on million dollar loans. You know, I remember the small burrito factory in Vernon (laughs) and then I've worked on $200 million loans um, and I'm pretty agnostic. I don't go after the big deals. Um, You know, five to 30, 40 million seems to be a good range for me. When I was a lender and I received a package direct from the developer, Oftentimes, it didn't tell me everything I needed to know. Um, And unfortunately, I'd have to turn that business away. And what I mean by it was incomplete, that's that interrogation. What's your track record? Who's your contractor? Um, I'm looking at your detailed construction budget. How many of those MEPs and mechanical electrical plumbing have been bid out? Boom, boom, boom. And they're like, oh, my gosh. And so, you know, rather than having to charge double a fee and hold their hand, that's not my job. I'd say, you know what, Here's, here's the name of three mortgage brokers, go find one. That was one example. The other example is sometimes I'd get a package from a broker that was, you know, maybe it's a $10 million deal or a $5 million deal, and it was three pages. And, and it, there's two questions. One is, do you have control of this deal? And then say, well, what does that mean? You know, It means, are you the only broker um, working on this? Do you have an exclusive? And if they said no, I'd say, well, I'm not going to work on it because my time is valuable. How do I know who am I competing with? Mm-hmm. And, and the good brokers were always even even them, they were taken aback by the question, what do you mean, who else am I? You want me to tell you who else I've taken the package to? Absolutely, because I know my competitors. We're all friends. Right. right. And they would say, well, I'm showing it to this lender, and then I'd say, you know what? I know they're gonna beat me out. I'm gonna save you the time. They're gonna give you a great deal. Tell them Alina said hi, and they would appreciate that. Um, so a lot of times, the, the the issue I face today is developers, sponsors, they don't wanna give me an exclusive. It's a non-starter. And, right. and oftentimes I have to tell them, I'm providing you services that you didn't even know you needed. And again, my focus is properties in transition. And by that, I mean, I look at the business plan and I find all the holes.
1: Right.
0: And it's a, it's a tough conversation because I, I can, I'm kind of telling them what they're missing or what they haven't thought of or what they've done wrong. The good news is I can mitigate all that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Who's your contractor? What's their experience building multifamily? Well, they've only built high-end homes. You know, here's here, I've got relationships with five or six general contractors in the city of LA. Go talk to a few. My job is to make sure that every penny required to get to the finish line is accounted for in the budget. So that when you close your loan, you don't have to worry about it. Your job is to show up every day on the job site, make sure it's getting done. I take care of the loan documentation. I make sure that they're in a good loan that gives them flexibility because I don't remember a construction project that didn't go wrong. Something always goes awry. Something always happens. And my job in, you know, I I got into USC law school. I I decided not to go, but attorneys have been my biggest mentors. And so I always, as a lender, took a first crack at, at drafting that loan agreement. These aren't template documents you get off the internet. They talk about what if this happens and the construction start date and the, you know, all the milestones that have to be met. And so my job still today, even though I'm a broker who gets paid a commission, I don't disappear. Um, It's my brand and reputation. It's, it's untarnished. I'm in it through and through because most of my, my um, clients are bringing me a repeat business. It's a scalable, it's a scalable uh, relationship. And so it behooves me to make sure that they're in a loan the day that it closes, they're off and running. And I look at potential issues that could come up and I make sure that there's some mitigant in the loan document that allows for that unforeseen, you know, problem. And they're not, you know, automatically in default and having to deal with a a really negative situation. So it's like, it's how do you tell someone, look, I've got 30 years as a loan workout officer, as an analyst, as an appraiser, as a consultant doing feasibility studies, it's, it's 30 years of knowledge that like, you know, I don't ignore it. I I bring it all. And it's on a spec basis. I mean, I don't get generally don't get paid until the deal closes. And sometimes deals are so complicated that, you know, I end up, you know, sometimes taking a small retainer up front just to get it.
1: I mean, it sounds like, I mean, you really have a very good holistic approach with it where you kind of Besides that you've done everything, you have the people um, that are needed to do this, and you really bring a lot more to the table than just being a lender, which, you know, I think is 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 great because so many times, I mean, there's people that get into different businesses, even if they've done this before, um, you know, they're probably thinking about eight or nine other things, and you're kind of bringing them back to earth and, okay, here, let's make sure we, we get this done the right way. Yeah, Um, I
0: would. Yeah. And I, you know, my I have a like I'm I'm right now working on with a client who's buying land. He just put it under contract to build um, a 250 unit apartment community in Phoenix. The construction loan won't close for 12 or 13 months. Right. It's a 40 million dollar deal. They're a husband and wife team. The, it's, the family's been doing construction for 60 years. They're now the second generation. And they don't have millions and millions of dollars. And so to give an example of what I do now, because I'm not a lender, but obviously I know what lenders want, right. is when you look at a capital stack, the full capital stack is $40 million. It's it's a combination of a $20 million loan. And about 15, 16, whatever the math is, right. 17 million of equity, they're coming to me saying, look, we need to spend $2 million just to get the plans and the architectural and the engineering. So on this, this is a, it's called a full capital stack assignment. So on a $40 million deal, my clients are putting in about half a million. Mm-hmm. I'm bringing in a co-GP. Um, who will invest a, if, uh, the million five. So collectively, they f- form a joint venture to spend the two million to get to a point where they're ready to start construction. In about four or six months, I'll be talking to some institutional LP, passive e- equity investors, and I've got a few in New York who've already vetted the sponsor. They already like the deal. And they'll be putting in the $15 million check Wow. And then, and then, about a month or two after that, I'll be talking to the construction lenders because by then we'll be ready. So that's that's just a, a, the best example of the highest risk um, in terms of raising capital because it's ground up construction because it's so early on. Right. Um, granted, it's multifamily, which is one you know one of the two lowest risk products right now in this environment. Uh, apartments and industrial are the sweetheart product types. Um, in the current market but that's a, a good example of um, what I do now this is the fifth deal that I've underwritten for them in the last six months so suddenly I'm, I'm wearing their analyst hat I play their analyst right. and they'll come to them and say you know we, we found another great deal it's off market we think we can get a good deal Alina can you help us vet it so they're coming to me as early as possible they're the, the best client because I can vet the deal and tell them, yeah, these are the what the returns look like. If you can build it, because they're experts, they know that it'll cost $115 or $110 per foot. They have all those numbers together. In very short order, I can tell them, you know what, the returns work on this deal. Let's pursue it. And so we've pursued five or six deals, and this one's the first one to hit. So it's, it's, it's about a year's worth of relationship and, and work on my part, and now we have the real deal.
1: Right. So it sounds like what you do, you have a, a, a long lead time before you get paid out for, for the work that you're doing. Yeah. Um, so it de- definitely shows that you have a, a true vested interest in these different projects um, with these people. And it's you have a real partnership that that you have to develop with everybody.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So from your experience, um and seeing what's going on and then now with with COVID 19 and so many people working from home what do you see um happening with the commercial real estate market i mean do you see that um businesses are going to uh, you know office space and things like that because of people working from home that there's going to be more empty space what do you what are you hearing
0: None of us have the perfect answer. It's, it's too soon to tell. My perception is that, uh, you know, I hear those horror stories of people working from home with kids screaming in the background. They're like, I can't wait to get back (laughs) to the office. (laughs) That's not me. My kids are grown. Um, I've been working from home for about 25 years and we do have an office. uh, George Smith partners has an office in century city that I, that I go to. Uh, you know, a couple times a week. But, um, you know, I, while well, I think that that there's going to be some increase in vacancy across the board, there's, there's stress, obviously, in tenants' ability to pay rents. Um, sometimes, you know, you see a flight to quality. Um, uh, office users of, of Class C buildings are able to move up into Class B buildings and so forth and so on. Um, this might be the time when you weed out old class C buildings and convert them to apartments. Right. So it's a big pivot. It's a big shift. It's something that we'll probably see the results of over the next two to five years. Okay. Um, retail obviously has been hit really, really hard. Um, I'm out in the market every day talking to lenders and some have said we're not looking at retail. If we're looking at retail, it's big box users, neighborhood uh, grocery anchored, obviously, you know, grocery stores, anything that's, that's a, it's, that's a you know, service provider that's always needed. Um, but if you have a, a, re, a neighborhood shopping center that's got a lot of mom and pop nail salons, um, it just means that lenders are being far more conservative. Uh, they're, they're adding a lot of more, you know, a lot more belts and suspenders to the loans that they do. So the money's still out there. Right. Deals are still happening. Buyers are still buying. Sellers are still selling. Loans are still getting loan. You know, uh, loans are still getting done, except that, um, you know, there's more conservative underwriting on vacancy. You know, we're no longer writing these three, four percent upticks per year on on rents. It's now it's maybe flat for the next 12 to 18 months. Um, so it's just you just have to you know focus on where can things continue to go wrong and mitigate it, whether it's through maybe you know um additional reserves we saw with um stabilized apartments for example those have uh, the benefit of really favorable long-term pricing from the agencies and for a while there you know uh, in april may june um they were saying you know in addition to this loan we're going to have to add 12 to 18 months worth of debt service into the loan and that typically meant that um the loan proceeds were hugely affected and some of those borrowers had to come up with more dollars to close but they said look as soon as we pass the 3 or 6 month mark we'll give you all that money back and um and now we now you know we're in September a lot of those agency uh, lenders have relaxed some of those underwriting standards so things seem to be getting a little bit better
1: yeah, it just I know there's a you know a lot of discussion you know like with the the movie theaters and stuff like that talking about you know are they going to be able to stay in business or not, and those are just big spaces and and what's going to happen to these? I know that in in our area with um, some of the you know like Lord and Taylors and stuff like that that are that are going out of business, which have been the anchors in these malls. It you know what's going to happen. Um, And that's really starting to to concern people because obviously, you know, if you have vacant properties, um, it's not it's not good for for the community at all. Um, Yeah.
0: Well, you know, malls have been around since the 80s and and over the last 10 years, there's been a, a, a great focus on on the longevity of the traditional mall that's this big giant box with these little tiny doors and people walk into them and and they've been suffering for quite some time. A lot of the large mall owners like Westfield and Simon have done a great job of rethinking the mall and making it, you know, you've seen outdoor malls actually get the roofs taken off. It's There was a lot of focus pre-COVID on creating a lifestyle, creating an experience. And unfortunately, it seems that those retail properties that, that weren't you know caught up with that new trend are, are really suffering um uh and so i think that's just going to continue um but you know it, it, uh, movie theaters i don't know <laughs> I don't, yeah. that one's uh it's unfortunate um because uh you know disney did buy quite a, a lot of studios mm-hmm. um and so they're you know they're one of the, the it, it it it'll be interesting to see how they approach it but beyond that I, I i haven't put a lot of thought into theaters right yeah
1: so you know again you said you've been, been doing this for, for 30 some years now what what do you wish that you know that you knew back when you started that you know now that you think would have you know helped you in your career
0: Oh gosh, that's a tough question. <laughs> um I guess what I tell young people coming into the business, yeah, is that this business is really about relationships. Mm-hmm. And it's all about your brand and reputation. It's a very male dominated industry. It has been traditionally when I entered in the back in the early 90s, there were very few men um, or pardon me, very few women. Um, and that's, that's changed quite a bit. And it took me a while to find my groove because networking always involved golf, you know, or, uh, fishing or these, you know, NASCAR racing. Uh, and, uh, as a young woman, I finally said, you know what, I just, I just have to hang out with, with the boys. And I remember, um, when I was able to talk shop talk about golf that was really the the icebreaker for me as a young woman in the industry but it's it's cultivating relationships um following up with people um networking you know as a young woman it was really uncomfortable to network um i kind of you know you walk into a room with two three hundred people there's maybe 10 women in the room it's how do you do that and so um you know it's it just really it's it's thinking about your long-term brand and reputation and ultimately it becomes about track record. But until you build that track record, um, you're just a woman in a room. And so how do you, how do you navigate that? But um, you know, I wish somebody had told me just the importance of of relationships. I finally figured it out. It took me a couple of years. And once I hit my stride in my mid twenties, Mm -hmm. you know, it was, It was good to go, but, you know, keeping in in touch with relationships, reaching out to people's, um, going back to old clients, just you, you, you have to, you have to harvest your 30 years or 20 years or five years of relationships. Don't forget about people. You'd be surprised. And occasionally they reach out to me and I'm like, wow, blast from the past. And then next thing you know, I'm underwriting deals. Right. And it's like, you know, I feel, I feel ashamed. I'm like, I should have been the one calling them. Um, but yeah, that's, it's, it's all about relationships and and reputation and, and really being honest and having integrity, bearing bad news early is the best thing you could possibly do. I just did that on my own. And uh, the, the best compliment I ever received when I was a young lender was that the, the, the developer said, you know, what we like about Alina is that when she turns you down, right, they, they want, they needed a loan from me and I had to turn them down. She makes you feel really good about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was like, thanks. You know, I kind of told them why the deal wasn't going to get done or why I couldn't work on it. And they appreciated the candor and the honesty. And, and you know, sometimes we have a tough job and we have to be the bearer of bad news and just don't hold on to bad news. Just get it out. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: So if somebody wanted to to start getting into commercial real estate or they're doing it and they're not happy with who they're who they've been using how how would somebody get in touch with you um to get you to help them
0: um george smith partners. Uh, george smith partners has a website called gspartners.com um, they can find me there um through linkedin as well okay um you know we're a boutique firm we have 14 originator teams the staff of about 50 professionals work the whole spectrum of financing from ground-up development to you know trophy class a stabilized assets um we work all across the country occasionally i might consider dabble a deal um uh, out of country um but yeah gspartners.com or linkedin
1: okay what um one last question for you here what what is the the biggest challenge that you're facing now
0: uh whenever we are having market turmoil I don't know turmoil turmoil is the right word so you have an election pending mm-hmm. um you have covid um it really always means, that values are up in the air. And anytime values are uncertain, um, everybody, foresee, you know, they see they see a greater amount of risk. And so the biggest challenge for me right now is how do you value a property? How do you value a property in the current environment that's cash flowing? How do I value a property that doesn't yet exist, that's going to be ready for occupancy in the next 12 to 18 months. And the biggest challenge is um, appraisals and, and lenders. So lenders see a lot of risk in the market. They're gonna be more conservative. And so sometimes that means we have to go raise more equity that creates you know, additional time um, and resources. Appraisers are being very conservative. The last two multifamily deals that I closed, one was halfway through construction. Actually, both were halfway through construction. I had to fight with like a 20 page rebuttal to an appraiser to to go find that empirical data that was going to support our argument Mm -hmm. that rents should be here and not here. And I was successful, (laughs) Uh, thankfully, but boy, that added a lot more time and resource and, you know, back and forth. And so that's been really the biggest challenge is, when you have mark, the market fluctuating like it is, and there's a little bit of volatility and uncertainty. Uncertainty means risk. Higher risk means uh oh, value. You know, we want to be more conservative. It's, people sometimes get doom and gloom. Um, having to, you know, trying to to get the lenders to, you know, give them comfort that the underwriting, you know, is solid. So it's it's a lot of work, okay. but uh, we get it done.
1: Elena, it really sounds just in in talking to me sounds like you uh, really like your job and you're very excited about it and passionate.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I am. uh, I think you need a passionate broker and I I want to give my clients comfort that their deal has a great chance of of getting done. Um, I have a a stellar track record as a lender, Um, you know, as a as a broker. It's it's once we, we, we put the business plan, and sometimes it's a 20-page pitch deck, sometimes it's 50 pages, whatever it takes, um, within a very short period of time, a couple of weeks, when, when, those, when I'm able to call my developer client and say, I've got three banks that want to do your deal, that's when it gets really exciting because I'm bringing them options. Right. When we get to sit down and, you know, we go through the interviews with lenders or or if I say, you know, I've got an equity investor that really likes your deal and equities, you know, equities tough to raise. Um, that's when it gets really exciting. And and we're able to do that in a very short order, no matter how complicated the deal, even before I get all my, you know, my my arms fully around it, I'm already making calls right. and I'm already having a, a, an idea of who. Who my audience is going to be because by the time that pitch deck is ready to go, I may go out to a, a curated list of, of people that I have strong relationships with, or it might go out to fifty or sixty players. You know, and, and you know, I, I usually determine how I'm going to manage that. But success is when you're getting term sheets and and you've got multiple lending sources who are excited about doing the deal.
1: That's great. That's really really good. Alina, I really appreciate your time today. Um, our guest, Alina Martisic, George Smith Partners. Thank you for your time.
0: Thank you. Have a good day. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer.